2024 is the year of podcasts, and we want to let you know about a brand new show that is live right now. Join with me to share the good news about the Worthy of Everything podcast. It's just one of the two hosts, Jaja Lasso. Jaja, you've been working on this podcast in the background. Our team has been very excited as we've been preparing for its launch. How does it feel to know that the episodes finally are out there and we're moving forward every single week? It is so exciting and I am just excited to see where God takes it and I have so much hope that it is going to be an incredible blessing to the listeners. Amen, amen. But as I understand it, this is a show tackling the issues of mental health through the lens of the gospel. Can you share just a little bit more about the heart and the intent and who you're really trying to serve through the Worthy of Everything podcast? So I personally was freed from depression and as I've come to understand my freedom from sin and identity in Christ, I start to recognize all these amazing gifts that God has given us. So yeah, just exploring and hearing awesome testimonies about how to walk out true intimacy with a loving father who pursues his kids. Oh man, sounds like a good time. If you want to check out the show, lovereality.org slash podcasts and look for the Worthy of Everything show. The world doesn't think that the gospel can change your life, but we know that it can. And that's why we want you to hear these stories, stories of transformation, stories of freedom, people getting free from sin and healed from sin because of Jesus. This is Death to Life. And the enemy said to me, you can finally do what you want, Lord. And so if I want to date women now, I'll date women. And that weekend, I went up to the front, and when I said amen, the Holy Spirit told me where my value comes from, and that is daughter. Yo, today's guest is my sister, Floor, and I met Floor in September of 2021. Uh, and when I say met her, I like that's the first time we really just got to kick it together. But I've known her. I've known who she was uh, since I think spring, summer of 2020, when I first heard her story. And it's been a long time coming that this story is on the podcast. It is not suitable for young ears. It is super powerful. Uh, man, what else can I say about it? that hasn't already been said about how the gospel changes lives. I don't know. I think you're just going to have to listen to it. Other than that, I think it's time to listen to this podcast. So buckle up, strap in, love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Man, this is real talk. God is loving on me. Colorful and innocent, that's on me. Got me standing in the light and it's on me. It's a new heart. It's a new beat. It's a new thing. It's a new seat. It's a new king, it's a new dream. It's a new heart, it's a new Yeah, where, where, where are you from? Okay, um, I was born in Guatemala okay. to a Guatemalan father and a Costa Rican mother. So although they are both Central American, they come from very different backgrounds and cultures. So my, my mom, being from Costa Rica, Costa Ricans are very proud people um, because... They don't have, uh, they don't have like a native people like the Guatemalans do. The Guatemalans have the indigenous Mayas. And so they're darker skinned, shorter stature, you know, 
Um, the Costa Ricans have a lot of Spanish blood in them. So they're lighter, taller, and they, they, I think they, uh, they think they're like the, um, Europeans of Central America. Like they're very proud of their country and the way they look. Um, yeah. And the economy and tourism in Costa Rica. So they're very proud people, good people, but, but proud. Man, in doing this podcast, I've, I've learned so much more about Hispanic culture. Uh, and it's super interesting to me. But how did, how did that manifest itself with your mom then? Um, so my, my mom is a very proud person and so is my dad. Um, and we'll get into that later, but, um, she just growing up, we always just went to her country. My dad was one of 12 and he grew up with very humble beginnings. He was very poor. Um, and my mother, um, she was more of a middle-class, um, family mm-hmm. and she's only one of four. And so she was a lot closer to her family than my dad's family. And so we, we really just grew up going to Costa Rica. So I don't know much about Guatemala. I'm definitely, I was born in Guatemala, but I'm definitely more Costa Rican just because of my mom. Okay. How long were you down there? Oh, so we, uh, we lived in Guatemala actually for two years. And then my dad, uh, got a call, um, from the Adventist church. Um, they immigrated him to the U S so that's when we moved here. Um, the Adventist church wanted to bring my dad over, uh, to be the Hispanic leader of the co-porters or the literature evangelists in, uh, Chicago. In Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So we went from Guatemala to Chicago. Wow. It's like night and day. And you were <laughs> two or three years old. I was two. Mm-hmm. So you have no memory of growing up down there? No. Uh-uh. I I do remember being very little um, and realizing that the floors looked different. Like, that's what I remember. Like, I remember America had very shiny floors. And I think it's because, you know, when you're a kid, like, you're just crawling and you're just on the ground all the time. And in Guatemala, you know, there's they don't have fancy flooring. And so I just remember the airport floor was just so shiny that, and that to me was my first memory of coming to America. That's funny. Yeah. Like it's a better life here. Shinier floors. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So my dad's a pastor um, and my entire childhood revolved around church and I hated it. Why is that? Because we were just always in church. Everything was about God. Like we, we weren't really allowed to have fun or we didn't do fun things as a family unless it was tied to church. Um, yeah, because my dad being the corporate leader, you know, that's what he did all the time. And then uh, when I was 12, he decided to go back into the pastoral ministry um, and we moved to Mississippi. And that's when my my true PK, you know, era started to happen. And so it was just church all day long, every day. I felt like everything was religion, religion, religion. Did you feel like when you were younger, you enjoyed the Bible stories and, and you learned a lot in Sabbath school, but then there was a change or, or was your relationship to church kind of always a little strange? I liked learning about the Bible stories for sure. Uh, but I don't know. I think it was just different for me. So, you know, the 
Jewish people, they dip the Torah in honey and they give that to their kids so that, you know, they lick it. And so they kind of associate God's word with something sweet. For me, it felt like the Bible had been dipped in sour milk and I was given this and told to lick it. And so that's how, that's how I viewed the Bible and God and church from a young age. And I'll get into that further later, but, um, it was very much like this, you're a pastor's kid and this is what you have to do. You have to be an example to others. Um, and I went to public school and in public school, I wasn't allowed to have friends because, you know, they weren't Christian enough. And then at church, I wasn't allowed to have friends because they weren't Christian enough. You know, I was the pastor's kid and I needed to be an example. And, um, there was higher standards put on me from a young age. So, um, so that's why I didn't like it. What kind of friends did you have then? Um, I had no friends, actually. I mean, I had my siblings, you know, my sisters. I have an older sister. I'm a middle child. My older sister is kind of an old soul. Um, and so she never really enjoyed playing with me. And my brother, he's kind of rough around the edges when we were kids. And um, he didn't want to play Barbie. So it was just me. And so I spent a good chunk of my childhood alone, playing alone. Um, and little Floor adapted and she created these imaginary friends and she would, she had a very creative mind. Um, and so she played alone a lot. Hmm. So when you get to 12 years old, is it, are you in Mississippi by 12? That's yeah. Do you feel like, um, were you rebellious or were you just kind of just tired of church? Um, I wasn't rebellious because I feared my parents too much to be rebellious. However, I had innately, like I had always loved makeup and jewelry and girly things mm -hmm. that my parents deemed wrong or bad. And therefore I felt that I was bad. Um, and so what ended up happening is that I kind of developed, um, another persona. Have you ever read Uncle Arthur's Bedtime Stories, um, The Two Carolines? I've read, I have them in my daughter's room right now. I <laughs> don't remember that story. What's the story? Oh, that story like really resonated with me as a kid. Um, basically, Caroline was two different people. She was one way at school with her friends, and then she was another way at home. Um, and that was me. That was my life. I was one way when I was in school, in public school, and then with my friends. Um, and then at home, I was a totally different way because I just didn't feel loved and accepted. And so I just kind of spent a lot of time alone um, in my own head. Hmm. Did your parents have any idea? Yeah. I mean, my parents thought that I was not normal because they would... I would lock myself in the closet and just play with my dolls for like hours by myself, just talking to myself. Cause you know, I had all these imaginary friends and I remember one time I opened the closet door and my mom was standing there and she was like, we have to take you to a psychologist, you know? <laughs> and so for a child, that's like, Oh, there's something wrong with me. You know, my mom just said, I need mm -hmm. help and I need to go to the doctor. Um, for my, for my head, like I must be weird. There's something abnormal about me. Um, 
But, you know, Richard, I wish my parents would have taken me to a child psychologist because I'm pretty sure that that psychologist would have told them this girl just needs healthy relationships in her life of kids her age. That's all I needed and all I wanted. And I didn't get that. So it affected me. Your parents were trying to protect you from the world, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you tell me, like, is that was that their motivation from, from what you see now? Yeah, but what 100%. actually happened was... What actually happened was that I ended up creating all these voids in my heart that I needed to fill. And I, I ended up doing that later mm-hmm. in life. Um, but not feeling so you're, you're, you're growing up, you're getting tired and more tired of the church. Um, but you're so afraid of your parents that you're still kind of Mm -hmm. sticking with the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it got to the point where (laughs) in high school, like my parents made me ride the bus. I was, I had some friends in school because, you know, I have a bubbly personality. I'm pretty social. Um, I make friends wherever I go. Um, and girlfriends would be like, Hey, I'll come pick you up at, you know, at your house and I'll drive you to school. My parents would never allow that, you know? And so what ended up happening was that in high school, I would like in, in the bus ride to high school, I would change completely. Like I would leave the house wearing one thing. And then in the bus, I would change. I would paint my nails, put on my toe rings, <laughs> like put on rings, um, do all these like, you know, worldly things that my parents didn't approve of, get to school, wear my little Abercrombie shirt. And then when the bell rang, got back on the bus, had to change from head to toe, put socks on so they wouldn't see my toenail polish or my toe rings and like, take off all my rings and just basically go back into my home as like a good conservative Christian girl. That was my life. So you were, man, that sounds like a lot of hard work, but it, w- it had to be worth it, right? Because you yeah. needed to be this thing at school. Yeah. Well, I just needed to be me. And I felt like I couldn't be me at home. You know, like I just felt if I was me, my parents always found some way to make me feel like something was wrong with me. Like, well, don't be yourself because yourself is, is bad. You like bad things. So therefore you're bad. Who, who were you at that point? Who did you believe that this is who you are? And I need to be this person. I struggled with identity my whole life. I don't know who, who I thought I was at that time. Um, you know, I was too Latina to fit in with the white crowd and I was too, um, too white to fit in with the Hispanics. And so I just had all sorts of like identity problems when I was younger because religion and, you know, race and even within my own family, I felt like I was the black sheep. Um, because I liked to paint my nails and that was bad. How did you feel about yourself overall? Were you happy with yourself and just these people don't know what they're doing or were you not happy with yourself? Like who you believed you were? I felt like something was wrong with me. I definitely was not happy with myself because I wanted to just fit in desperately anywhere, you know, whether it be, whether it be at home Mm -hmm. or at school with my friends, like I just wanted to be a hundred percent of something. 
What do you think is the thing that was the farthest from your parents that you thought, I want that? Like painting the nails, that can't be crazy far. But was there something in your mind that you're like, I want this thing? Like, this is something that I want to be about. That was in your mind, that was so far that you would that you would never actually do, but oh, maybe that would be cool. I think when I was younger, I fantasized about creating this life where I had friends and I had freedom and I could wear whatever I wanted and do whatever I wanted without condemnation. That to me was the ultimate goal. It wasn't so much like, oh, I want to pierce my ears or I want to have a boyfriend Hmm. or whatever. I just wanted to leave home. I I was six years old and I was counting down the days until I turned 18. (laughs) (laughs) So sad. You're six years old. You're done with Sesame Street. You're like, get me out of here. I felt rejected and alone in my own family. So you're going through high school. Does anything come up that just jumps out of your mind that you'd say? Yeah, for sure. This Um, is important. This was formative. So like I said, I really liked beauty things. And um, I was a sophomore in high school, in public school. And every year they... The school that I went to held a beauty pageant in Mississippi because beauty pageants are a big deal down in the South. And um, I wanted to enter. And so I entered. And the pageant was on a Saturday night, more like afternoon slash night. <laughs> so like kind of on the Sabbath, okay. um, but like the <laughs> tail end of the Sabbath. Okay. Right. And I had told my mom it was Saturday night and like, she right. she never said yes. She didn't say no. I was just rebellious and I did it. You know, I signed up. So the day came and when my parents realized what I was doing and, and when I was doing it, they were so upset and so angry. But I was like, mom, I already have my dress on. I had my hair done and my makeup done. Like, please just give me a ride to the school, you know? Um, so she did. And um, it was just her that took me. And the beauty pageant happened, and I actually won third place. And I remember standing up on the stage, and I had these, like, bouquet of flowers and, like, a tiara, and they took my picture for the yearbook, which was, like, a big deal for Little Floor, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I was just on cloud nine. Like, I thought, oh, I made it, you know? And I remember getting in the car to go home. And my mom said to me, well, you only won because of the devil. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, mercy. And so I, did you say something after that or that was it? Uh, no, I mean, I cried, I think because I couldn't even, um, I couldn't even have that moment, you know? Oh. <laughs> what did you take that to mean? That anything good that happens to you, it's because the devil wanted it to happen to you. Because mm. what you think is good is actually bad. 
What what grade were I you? I was in a sophomore in high school. <laughs> so what uh that just became part of your makeup then that just that became was part, part of, of my DNA, who you, you know were. condemnation, judgment, church. And and like I said, I was counting down the days and when when I turned 17 and my dad was like, okay, you have to go canvas and be a coal porter. That means you're going to have to like leave the house for, you know, the summer. I was like, sign me up, like get me out of here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's what I did. And after I left, uh, I think I was 16 at the time, actually, I'm not, I don't remember, but, um, after that summer of canvassing, I went to, um, Academy and then I never came back home. So you, you felt some freedom when you were in Academy, were you kind of like your, your own person? Yeah. Like, did you feel like, oh, I'm out of my house now. I can be floor. For sure. Um, so I went to this little school called Bass Memorial Academy. It was a very strict school back then when, um, I went strict to the point where like girls and guys could go outside on different days, like on odd days, the boys would go outside and, and like walk the circle is what we call it. There was like a road that like went around the school and the boys were allowed to go on, you know, odd days or whatever. And then the girls could only be out there on even days because it was that strict. But to me, I was like, this is awesome. Like I don't have to come home every day feeling like I'm bad, you know? Like my parents aren't here to condemn me and judge me for what I say or what I don't say or what I wear or what I don't wear. And so although I was in a very conservative environment, little Floor was like, she finally had her wings. That was just the beginning. Were you interested in guys at this point? Yes. Um, But it wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't like a, big deal to me. Um, and I do want to mention something about that. So at that point in my life, I had this really messed up idea of what guys were. So my mother, she had a traumatic experience when she was younger. Um, and she grew up being very fearful of men and very apprehensive or she just didn't trust men. And so she kind of instilled that Mm. in me growing up. She would tell me that men were gross, that men only wanted one thing. Uh, Yeah. Los hombres son cochinos. She would always say that. Like, Mm -hmm. just men were just only after one thing. And so I grew up thinking, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, men men are nasty. And, like, they only want sex. And I kind of actually looked at them as the weaker sex, to be honest. And so when guys started to like want to date me, um, in high school and in college, I was very, um, I don't know, like I looked down on them. I was not Hmm. nice to boys. As I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, She's not wrong, but she's not <laughs> right either. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not 
you can't paint it mm-hmm. with a huge broad brush. Mm-hmm. But she's right. But if you feed that into somebody, what would she say about your dad? That he was the only good one because he's a pastor and because he feared the Lord. He's the only good one. But even like my dad wasn't allowed to change our diapers when we were kids. I found this out recently. Like my mom didn't even trust my dad. So she would say these things like, well, you know, your dad's different because he's a pastor and he knows better. But, But the men out there, they're just savages. And so I grew up thinking that, and therefore, when guys would want to, like, date me or pursue me, I'd be like, oh, okay, maybe. You know, I was very condescending. And that drew them to you, I'm sure. That's the secret. (laughs) (laughs) If the girl's not interested, the guys are like, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's John's story. Now that you think that men are the weaker sex mm-hmm. and you're a woman, did that help you in your identity and in your self-worth? Or was it still, you were still wrapped up in not being super pumped about yourself? I mean, I definitely felt good about myself when I was out living my life, you know, like in academy and, and college and whatnot. But it was always those times when I went home or when my parents would call me over the phone, it would almost like just be that little dose of reality, like, Floor, you're actually not a good person, you know, or you're actually doing everything wrong, you know? And then I would feel like, oh man, my Hmm. self-esteem would just plummet. And it was exhausting Hmm. to like always have to change who I was with my parents versus the rest of the world. So what was the plan? Was the plan to get out of college? Did you know what you wanted to study? Did you know what you wanted to be? No. Well, yes and no. Like I knew I wanted to go to Loma Linda. Like that was my dream. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, But my parents, when they immigrated to the U.S., my dad's dream was for one of us three kids to go to Loma Linda and get a doctorate degree. And so that was going to be me. I was going to make them proud, at least in that, in that sense. Um, and so I started college as a biology degree, uh, and I finished with a biology degree, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I thought about maybe being a dentist and then I, I took the DAT and I was like, Oh gosh, I bombed that. That was hard. And then Loma Linda, came to recruit, um, for their school of pharmacy. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And even though enrollment had closed for that following year, this was my senior year and I didn't know what I was doing. Um, they made an exception for me and they're like, well, do you want to be a pharmacist? And I was like, well, I guess. Do I get to go to Loma Linda? (laughs) (laughs) And so they're like, okay, no problem. Well, We'll fly out, interview you. Um, here's what you need to do. And then I got my acceptance letter two weeks later, and I was headed to Loma Linda a few months later. And I got accepted into the pharmacy program, which was a blessing because I didn't know I wanted to be a pharmacist. And I actually had prayed about it. And I said, God, you know me better than I know myself. So give me a career where I can find fulfillment. And this was the career he had for me. And I am blessed every day. I love my job. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Let's let's backtrack a little bit. When you get to Southern, oh, sorry, I stepped on the story. You went to Southern for people who. Oh yeah, so I went oh. to Southern after Bass, <laughs> um, and yeah, I met John my freshman year of college, and he started dating me right away. Like I was not available for the rest of the of my college experience. Like I had one boyfriend the whole time, um, but I. Gosh, man, I was such a bee. I <laughs> I said yes to him. He pursued me, and I liked him. He was he was sweet and caring and cute, um, and I was attracted to him. But I thought this isn't going to be like this isn't the final, you know, this isn't my final rose. Okay, like I'm young. I've just got my wings. Like I have all these plans for my life. Like I'm going to date around. I'm going to have fun in college. But John, man, he was really pursuing me. And so I said yes. But in my head, I, I thought, okay, he's going to be my practice boyfriend, you know, for when I get a real boyfriend in a few years. <laughs> so that's how it started. He was just going to be practice for me. And you know what's crazy, Richard? I told him that. And he, and he, and he was like, like I'm okay, okay with that. All right. Because he's like the sweetest person ever created by God, like, and the most romantic. Did did his romantic gestures and offerings to you were were did those move you? Were you like, yeah. oh, he's yeah. so sweet, or did you like fall for him more because of that, or were you like, eh, I mean, cool. I very much fell in love with him because he accepted me for who I was and he wasn't trying to change me. Like my parents were always trying to change me, you know? And I, and I liked that. Um, hmm. but at the same time I was starting to develop this, this pride, which is actually a generational curse in my family. It was starting to come to the surface. And so I still very much thought, well, you know, he's sweet and all that, but, but I'm still better than him. Hmm. And he knew this, like I told him this all the time. I was not, I mean, I didn't lie or I didn't hide it. Um, and he still pursued me my whole life. I didn't, I just, I wasn't getting that from anywhere. And so here's this guy who's just loving me unconditionally, even though I'm being like straight up a B, like he's mm -hmm. still pining for me that I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm either going to marry this guy or I need to break up with him now because Flora's got plans. <laughs> I'm going to Loma Linda. Yeah, I'm going to Loma Linda and like, I don't know, like I need to go find a real boyfriend, you know? <laughs> Mercy. Oh so that's what happened. Actually, I broke up with him. Like, was it like eight How months into a relationship? It? I realized like, oh shoot, like I'm falling for this guy. And like I said, um, I just was, it was, I was taken aback because he was just supposed to be practice. Um, and so I broke up with him like on the steps of the girl's dorm and he cried and I, I was numb and actually I was kind of like proud of myself. Like, Oh look, I just broke up with a guy and I didn't shed one tear, you know? And he was just devastated. Like he had sad eyes. Oh, it was horrible. Um, and I just started dating other guys because I was like, okay, now's my chance. So I went on a few dates with some other guys in the biology department, you know, that were going to be doctors because, you know, I was all about that life. And um, right. 
I actually went on a date with this guy who owned a Corvette who really liked me for, um, he had been like trying to get with me for so long and finally I was available. Right. So he's like, Oh, I got to take floor out. And he took me out on a date and we got in this horrible accident. Um, yeah, he was driving a Corvette and we got T-boned by a big SUV and Escalade on my side. Um, and I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. It was horrible, (laughs) but, um, God saved me. Were you hurt pretty bad? No, no, I was not. God sent his angels that, that accident was meant to kill me and it didn't, um, And it was in that moment that I realized, like, the first person I called when I, like, came to after the accident, um, it wasn't my parents or anything. It was, it was John. And we were not dating at that time. Like, I was out sowing my wild oats, you know? Uh, And I called him Uh and I was like, I got in this accident. You know, can you call, can you call my mom? (laughs) And like, I don't know. He was the first person that I wanted to talk to. And so after that, we got back together. Yeah. Wow. And then from that point on, it was, you were heading down the, the path of, it's, it's mm-hmm. going to be John. And we got engaged um, right before graduation and because he knew I was going to Loma Linda. And then we were engaged for a year and then got married um, in 2010. So now Floor's chance, ch- plans are changing a little bit. Had you modified it a little bit to now that what what was the plan now? Mm-hmm. You are going to Loma Linda. You didn't right. marry a doctor. I was kind of bummed about that. What is the plan um, now? Well, I my plans were just to like get my degree, study my heart out, graduate with my doctorate degree, and then like start earning money and start living my life the way that little floor had always wanted me to live my life, which was like I said hanging out with friends, doing things, um, cultivating relationships to fill those gaps that I had when I was a kid. Um, and so that's what I did in pharmacy school. I just, I studied hard and I graduated four years later. Um, how, how was it going with, with John at this point through pharmacy school? I bet that was, it's a stressful time to be married. Yeah. I want to backtrack just a little bit to our wedding. (laughs) So, um, I definitely displayed this persona of like, you know, I wore mini skirts in college and like, I don't know, people probably thought I was promiscuous just because of the way I dressed and the way I acted. But in reality, I was actually a prude. Um, yeah. And so John was my first kiss, my first everything. Um, and so on our wedding night, I was like thinking, oh shoot, like this is, this is it. This is the big deal. Um, and that night, our wedding night went horribly. We had sex for the first time and it was the worst pain I had ever felt in my entire life. So much so that the next morning when I saw my mother before leaving for our honeymoon, we went to London. Um, I just saw her and started bawling and just, I hugged her and she knew she's like, it's okay. It, it's going to get better. <laughs> so sex oh. really hurt me. And um, we'll get into that more later in the story because there's a reason why sex hurt me so much, a medical reason why. But 
our dysfunction in our, our marriage started our wedding night because of sex. Wow. Yeah. Mercy. Um, so could you, was, could you tell John, I'm sure was super patient and everything, but could you tell it hurt him a little bit? Yeah. Or did it hurt I him mean, a little bit? I mean, at first he like, he understood like, oh, you know, we're both virgins. Like there's going to be a rough period, but it just didn't get better. It actually got worse and it hurt more and more the more we did it. And, um, it definitely affected him because, you know, he felt like he got lied to because we had like, we had talked about sex before we got married and we were doing other things. And, um, then we get married and now his wife doesn't want to have sex with him as much as he thinks he deserves it. And therefore he felt gypped and I felt ashamed because I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? You know, those feelings of like my mom, you know, opening the closet when I was playing when I was a kid and telling me, Oh, we need to take you to a doctor. Like there's something wrong with your head. I started to feel like oh, something's wrong with me now. Like all those feelings of like your abnormal floor started to come back up. And so painful sex became my deepest, darkest secret. And the fact that I'm telling you this right now and like mm-hmm. kind of broadcasting this on a podcast just goes to mm-hmm. show the level of freedom I live in now because I don't, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. But wow. I spent nine years trying to hide that from everybody. Wow. Did, did the sex kind of color every single aspect of the relationship after that? Was it hard to get away from that <sighs> one yeah, thing? Yeah, for sure. Like I felt like anytime John did something nice to me, it was because he wanted something in return. And I knew what it was he wanted. And I, like I'm telling you, Richard, like I had PTSD, like my body would, would just clam up and the pain was so severe that like, I would rather do anything else but that in the world, anything else. Um, Hmm. and so I felt like I couldn't give myself truly to my husband because there was this huge missing part of our marriage which was intimacy and we were intimate in other ways. Um, and also emotionally as well. But, but I knew what he wanted because my mom, again, she growing up, she said, all men want is sex. Mm. They all, they just want one thing. And here I am not being able to perform and do this one thing. And so it really affected our marriage. Like he would throw it in my face. Um, and I would, kind of compensate by, by saying, well, pride, right? Like, well, I don't care. I'm still better than him. You know, he should just be, he should just be thankful. Mm. He married this. <laughs> it was just so dysfunctional mm. and so horrible. So that started pretty mm-hmm. soon. I started on the after honeymoon. After you got married then. Yeah. Wow. We loved each other and we had really good times and like, our, our marriage was fulfilling in so many other ways, but, but sex became this huge thing to both of us, you know, um, that it, it really caused a lot of fights between us. 
I wish I could say that this is an abnormal story. And I wish I could say, oh man, that's crazy, Floor. That's crazy that John treated you that way. Um, but mm-hmm. I can't. I can't. <laughs> because I know that's what I was like. And I know that because of lies surrounding sex, intimacy, but mainly lies about our identity and what we carry and who we are. Um, and then the pain of the past all just kind of wraps up into this thing where if we were not, if we're just, if we don't know who we are, man, everybody owes us. And like, yeah, so many people are dealing with this thing because we've lost the meaning of it and it's been hijacked by the enemy. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, you're the story like that that's the thing like someone listening to this who is like oh, I'm the only one that has this or like every other couple their sex lives are incredible and and they've never had a problem except me and my spouse are the only ones that have ever dealt with this. My husband is the worst, you know. He no other husband treats their wife like this or I'm the worst or because, you know, but um, yeah. So then, so uh, as you're moving forward in your marriage, what what happened because of all this? Like growing further apart, or were you no, able to still stay I tight? I mean, we started our marriage with the whole triangle thing. You know, the closer we got to God, the closer we get to each other. Uh, we would we would do devotionals when we first got married, um, and pray together in bed. But this this sex thing really affected us that it, it it started to create a wedge between me and John and resentment and anger and frustration on both, both sides. Um, but we just tucked it under the rug and we both came from very conservative homes. Um, and we had always known that we were, we were not going to divorce each other. Like, it just, it is what it is. This was our, our cross to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just tried to, um, make up the sadness and the hurt, um, in other ways in our lives. Hmm. How so? So, um, kind of keeping in line with the story at this point, I had graduated pharmacy school and, John got um, a job in Denver. And so we moved to Denver. And that's really when I felt like my life had started. Because at this point, I no longer was under the care of anyone, or I wasn't in school, or I didn't have responsibilities. Like I had a job, I made good money, I had a career, I had friends, I started to develop clout. Um, And I had a husband who, despite our you know, our struggles still loved me and, um, supported me mm-hmm. and accepted me for who I was. Um, and so we started working hard and playing hard in Denver. Um, all those, 
all those morals and and ways of living that we grew up uh, believing in kind of went out the window here in Denver. Um, I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted. I was proud of the life that I had cultivated. And I began to fill these voids in my heart with like connection um, and acceptance uh, from my friendships. Um, And that gave me identity. And not just me, it gave John identity too. Like we were the the type of friends that were always down for anything. You could call us at any time of the night, we'd be there for you. Um, We began to put our friendships above each other above our marriage, even we were at, mm. at that level. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the Strombella song, um, called spirits, but there's a line in, in that song that really resonated with me. Um, I don't want to live a never ending life. I just want to be alive while I'm here because hmm. that was my motto. Um, because when we were younger, um, in Chicago, I was maybe like five years old. This elder came up to my family at church and um, she told my dad that she had a dream. And in this dream, she was in the gates of heaven and she saw my sister and my father had made it to the other side. But my mom, my brother and I were not there. And she told us this. And I remember that stuck with me at at a very young age. And so that kind of was always in the background of my whole life. Um, And so when I, when we moved here to Denver and we started to just live our young and wild and free life, I thought, well, I might as well have fun here. It's not like I'm going to go to heaven anyway. Oh man. So (laughs) that's what we did. So the, like, even though you had gone against um, the Adventist upbringing that you had in your mind when you were young, it seemed like when you got to college, it still like was something that you were living by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I was like you, kind of judgmental of the people in the world. You know, because I had the light and I was very proud of that, you know. But then at some point you're like, nah. Well, it wasn't even so much that I was like, nah, I reject this completely 100%. I very much became bi-spiritual. I had one foot in the church and I had one foot in the world. And I was proud of it. So if old Richard would have called you out on that. If old Richard would have been like, on a Saturday night, we're hanging out, and I'm just like, yo, like, I saw you at church this morning, but I also know that you were at a bar last night. Like, Clubbing the night before? Yeah, what's up? Why are you doing that? Like, how would you have responded? Oh, um, I would not have gotten upset or angry, but I would have let you know that, you know, I spent four years... Four summers canvassing and maga booking um, and knocking on doors selling Bibles. Like, I would have told you that I prayed with my coworkers. 
that I had been witnessing to an atheist for several years that, um, that I always incorporated God, even on those drunken nights, we always ended up talking about God and I would have been like, Oh, Richard, you just don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds effective. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd have been like, Oh, okay. Oh, maybe Mm -hmm. I need to study my Bible. Yeah. I was proud of the fact that like, I was part of the world enough to relate to those people, Hmm. you know, and bring them the light. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think like, maybe this isn't it. Like maybe, maybe this is a problem. Or like, if you really got honest with yourself, like, uh, yeah. Did that ever come up? No. Mm -mm. Dang. Never. I knew what was right and I was doing the right thing and I was happy doing it. Or so I thought, you know, like I have everything. Um, John and I actually befriended a couple who had a similar backgrounds to us and um, they began to fill in the gaps in our marriage, you know, that we weren't filling for each other. And that's when things really started to get crazy. Um, Because like I said, I felt like I was doing everything right. And I was proud of it. And I was living this by spiritual life. And I was proud of it. And everything was, was good life. I was doing me, you know, YOLO, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but basically, I mean, what I ended up realizing was that I had this unrelentless need to feel accepted and have a close connection with friends. And John Uh had this unquenchable need for validation and love from women and nothing on this earth was going to fulfill that. And so we thought our friendships were going to do that. And we placed them kind of as idols in our hearts and we would do, we'd go to music festivals and travel and live this like jet life, but none of it really fulfilled us. Um, we still were horrible to each other and we had these like giant holes in our hearts. Um, and then October 10th of 2018 happened. And that's kind of where the story takes a turn. Welcome to season two. We have been working very hard to get these stories out to you. And we are just so excited that it's another season. And as freedom has just been taking over, people are receiving it. And the stories are just as powerful as uh, the stories that you heard in season one. If you have not heard all the stories from season one, please go back and listen to them. They are powerful. It's just the testimonies are enough to, to change lives. And I'm really proud of, of the work that this team is doing to get these testimonies out to you. So I hope you enjoy, listen, hear, be blessed. And if you're going to tweet about it or you're going to put us uh, on Instagram, use the hashtag death to life. That way people can find the show. 
uh, that we can make this thing go viral and people can hear about how God is transforming lives. Okay? All right, let's get back to the show. I had been having some breakthrough bleeding in between my periods, and I had decided to finally go see a doctor about it. So I went to the OBGYN, and they did an exam, and they did an ultrasound. And she came back in with the results, and she's like, you have stage four endometriosis, the worst of its kind. You have endometriomas, which are cysts, the size of lemons growing on both of you. The size of lemons. The size of lemons, yeah. Um, We need to get you on the surgery schedule ASAP to remove those. We're going to put you on hormone therapy. We're going to um, force you into menopause. You're probably going to need a hysterectomy by the age of 40. I was 30 at the time. Um, And, oh, by the way endometriosis is the leading cause of infertility. Oh my gosh. That was the worst day of my life because this perfect life that I was so proud of that I had spent time curating and creating just came tumbling down Hmm. because I basically felt like I was grieving the end of my perfect life, my health, my femininity, my hopes and dreams of someday becoming a mother, and all these friendships that I had spent time cultivating. And endometriosis, for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically um, when the lining of uh, the uterus starts to grow outside of the uterus. Hmm. And typically it'll grow... um, on top of the uterus or in the fallopian tubes or the ovaries. Um, But it can also grow in other parts of your body, all over your pelvic um, cavity. So like your bowels, the anus, the liver. Um, They have even found that endometriosis crosses the blood-brain barrier and lesions could grow in your brain. So what happens is that these these lesions, um, every month when a woman goes through her period, Mm they shed. And that's what a period is. It's this lining of the uterus that comes out. Well, in the uterus, it has an exit, but when these, these lesions start to grow outside of the uterus, there's no place for them to go Hmm. every month when they bleed. And so they're sticky and, uh, your organs can start sticking to each other. Um, and it's a very, very painful disease. There's no cure and it's chronic. Um, and the only way to alleviate Uh, the symptoms is to have surgery, to remove these lesions and these cysts that grow. Hmm. And so in that moment, I felt like, oh my goodness, I am the woman who bled for 12 years in the Bible because I was having excruciating pain. And I tell you, like, I don't want to be too much TMI, but endometriosis um, is horrible. Periods last 10 days, at least for me, they do. And it is severe bleeding to the point that I have to buy special tampons and special underwear. Um, And even then with both of those things, I still bleed through. Like it is astronomical, the amount of blood that I lose um, 10 days out of each month. Hmm. And when you have 
stuff that looks like dirty motor oil coming out of you as a woman that messes you up. That affects your psyche, especially knowing that like I might not become a mother someday. And this is why sex is painful for me. And I'm going to have to live with this disease for the rest of my life. Um, unless I have a total hysterectomy and I don't know if I want that. This was just too much for me to like take in all at once. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that, that was a horrible day and unbeknownst to me that same afternoon at that same hour, this couple that we had befriended, um, the wife had peed on a stick and found out that she was unexpectedly pregnant. So my mm. best friend was finding out this, um, this news that was 180 degrees different than mine. And that really messed me up. Um, and when she told us that she was pregnant, I just felt numb. And afterwards, um, John said to me, listen, Floor, don't worry about it. I believe in miracles. Get over your sadness. We need to be there for our friend. She needs us. And that hurt me even more than my diagnosis because he was basically diminishing my pain. Hmm. And so after that began the next 12 months of destructive behavior and basically floor circling the drain. So from that, you just, you just wanted to numb the pain with something. You just wanted to, to run from it. And what did, what did you run to? Well, I knew that, um, with my friend being pregnant, that that friendship was going to change. And more women my age were starting to have babies. These girls that I would like fly to New York city for the weekend or, you know, do brunch dates or whatever. Like they were starting to become mothers. And so I knew that that wasn't going to happen for me anymore. And, um, mm -hmm. I knew that I was physically ill, um, and needed to have surgery. So I just went through a period of, of loss and, and grief. And at the same time, kind of relief that I knew why sex hurt me so much. Like now mm -hmm. it made sense. I have had severe endometriosis since puberty, since I started my period. I just didn't know it because women don't talk about this stuff. We don't discuss our periods. We don't talk about our pain. It's looked on as like a taboo subject. And so I just thought everybody else was going through this mm -hmm. too. Um, but that's not the case. So in this destructive behavior, um, what were you finding through that? So October was when I found out the diagnosis and, um, that next month, um, that couple that we had befriended, um, and us, we bought tickets to go to a New York city, uh, 1920s Gatsby party. And I was so looking forward to it because that was going to help numb my pain. And it was also one of the last times we were going to mm -hmm. 
probably take a trip before the baby arrived. Um, and so I was pumped and I remember I went all out for this party. Um, I bought this dress that was beaded that weighed like 15 pounds. It was so heavy. Um, and then I was decked out wearing like gems and rhinestones from head to toe. Like I should show you a picture. I was, I looked like a disco ball. So I slapped on some lipstick and I put a smile on my face and I said, you know, I just, I'm just going to party the heck out of my sadness. And so that's what we did. We went to this party, all four of us in New York city. It was the most lavish, extravagant party I have ever been to in my life. They, they had a champagne tower and there were dancers twirling from the ceiling. It was so epic and so New York. Um, and it was at that party that I met my affair partner, which was a woman. Hmm. So you're at this party and you're just, and you run into this person and there's, I mean, was there a thought that you could ever cheat on your husband at this point? I think... The pride in me would have said no, like, no, I would never do that, you know. But the reality was that throughout the years, I had made little decisions that had led up to this point. So everything had come to this. Hmm. Um, and so the affair started as something emotional that quickly turned into something physical. Now, granted, she lived in New York City and I lived in Denver, so it was very much like, you know, long distance or whatever. Right. Um, but, but I was in a full-blown emotional affair with this woman, and that's what I used to numb my pain. Because you asked me, what did you do after, you know, you found out your whole endometriosis thing, and I used this woman to numb my pain. Was there a point where the, the lines are just getting blurry and blurry and blurry. And then like, there's a, okay, whatever I'm doing it. And then how did that hit you? If there was that. Um, There was a lot of cognitive dissonance. I don't know if you know what that means, but that's basically when your beliefs clash with your actions. Mm -hmm. And therefore I didn't want to think about it. Like I knew what I was doing was wrong and I was being secretive about it. Um, but I just didn't want to think about it because if I thought about it, I would start to feel bad and I didn't want to feel bad. I was already feeling pretty crummy about where I had ended up in life because of mm -hmm. October 10th. And so I didn't want to feel even worse. <laughs> so I just didn't think about it. Um, but also Richard, I have to be honest, like to me, it was just a fantasy. You know, I was married. She knew I was married. She met John. She met all of us that night. Like she just, she weaseled her way into my life, slid into my DMS and I was just, I was primed and ready. And the devil knew he just, he just knew what to say. 
Um, and so part of me kind of thought, well, it's not that bad. It's not like I'm sleeping with anyone, you know, or it's just a girl and I'm definitely not a lesbian. Like I'm married, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. this is just a fantasy in my mind, but I was keeping it a secret. That's how you know. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, if I can't, if you can't talk about it to your husband or to your mm-hmm. wife, that's, that's the telltale sign, yeah. like early on. But the fact that she was a woman probably, I mean, you just said it, made it easier for you to be like, oh, it's a woman. Yeah. So like we're yeah. friends and then it's like more than friends and then you kind of lie to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then when it, you actually are more than friends that it's too late. Is mm-hmm. that kind of how it went? Um, and I, I'd like to backtrack just a little bit here. Um, just to put sure. things into context. She wasn't the first girl I had ever kissed. Um, mm-hmm. that was actually a pattern of, of behavior that I had most of my life. Um, and it started when I was, I think I was six years old. Um, because like I told you, Richard, I wasn't allowed to have friends or close relationships with anyone outside of my immediate family. Once a year when my parents would, you know, pack up the van and drive us, uh, across the country to visit, uh, our cousins. That was when little floor finally had a friend and that was my girl cousin. And, um, Mm -hmm. We've been close, um, our whole lives. Like I still consider her my best friend. Um, but when I was little, she was not only my best friend, she was my only friend, you know? Mm-hmm. And one day, you know, I was, I think I was seven, maybe she was six. I don't remember how old we were, but we were very young. We were playing and she closed the door and turned off the lights and kissed me. And that was the first time I had ever been kissed by a girl. And I liked it and she liked it Mm -hmm. and it felt wrong, but at the same time, very safe and very sweet. Mm -hmm. And we engaged in that behavior. Like we had heavy makeout sessions as like six and seven year olds, um, hiding it from my parents. Um, and we did that for a few years and then we kind of grew out of it. We never told anyone. It was always a secret. And honestly, we didn't discuss it until this year. It's been 26 years that we didn't talk about it. Um, until I was sharing with her my testimony the other day and, and that came up and, um, it kind of opened Pandora's box, but, um, but yeah, we hadn't talked about it for 26 years. And she told me the other day, she's like, do you know why I did that to you? I said, no. She's like, because little girls at church were doing that to me. Hmm. And she thought it was okay. And therefore she did it to me and I thought it was okay. And so I grew up thinking, kissing girls, that's not bad. You know, Hmm. my friends did it to me when I was little, you know, my friend, so it was mm. never from a, like a, a bad place. It was always like a sweet endearing thing. And so as I got older, 
And that's what I would do with my girlfriends. I'd kiss them. It, it would usually involve alcohol. You know, it wasn't just like something you, you do all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would do it in front of our boyfriends or our mm-hmm. husbands, you know, and it was kind of a turn on for them. Not going to lie. Um, and that's the way it started. And that's the way I had viewed it. So then when this girl, you know, comes into my life, I'm like, oh, it's just another one of those things. You know, that's why I said the devil right. is so smart. He knew exactly yeah. how to bring me down. So how long until you, it was like a full fledged, like this is an affair. When she bought tickets to come see me in Denver, I knew like, oh shoot, this is real. Was that like a few months into this thing or? No. So, so the party was December 1st of 2018 and, uh, John found out and confronted me in February of 2019. Oh. So it only lasted two months. Um, but she had purchased her ticket to come in like three or four months. So after all of that, she was coming to visit me. And so that's when I knew she bought her tickets way in advance. That's when I knew I was like, Oh no, she's coming. She's coming and I'm going to have to meet up with her. And like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. So John had confronted you about this. He got wise to what you were doing pretty shortly after it started then. Yeah. He knew on new year's Eve. So we met December 1st. He found out new year's Eve and then confronted me in February. So that's just two months. So what was that like? So before I get into the whole confrontation part, um, during this time, I was questioning everything. Like, like Floor grew up in church. Like she was in the front pew for every service because as a pastor's kid, that's what you do. You for know, sure. um, sure. uh-huh. She had memorized the Ten Commandments when she was younger. She knew what adultery was, and she knew what that meant. And she knew what happened when adultery, you know, when a married couple committed adultery. But, again, I just didn't want to think about it because if I thought about it, I was going to feel pretty crummy. Um, And so then instead what I started to do was I started to, to question my values. Like, did my parents really raise me the right way? Hmm. You know, I questioned my religion. Hmm. I questioned my marriage. Did I marry the right guy? I questioned my sexuality, you know, like maybe I'm not heterosexual. Um, I questioned my identity and I even questioned if God existed. That's what the enemy wanted me to do. And so, meanwhile, I was questioning all this, trying to figure out what I was going to do. John was coming up with a plan on how he was going to confront me about this. So he knew for over a month before he confronted me about it. And so, two days before his birthday, on February 8th, um... He walks into the living room and sits on the chair and I'm on my cell phone and he's like, 
Hey, tell me who is. And I knew right away. I'm like, oh, shoot. Richard, I felt like I had drank a hundred hot coffees, you know, like I felt my heart was going to beat out of my chest and I was about to have it's a not a good combo. <laughs> no, no. I was like, oh, shoot, this is it. So I was confronted with a choice. Do I deny it or do I own up to it? And because I was just so confused during that time, I was like, I just need to be honest because I need help. So I told him, I said, I'm trying to figure out who she is too. And he's like, well, great. You're going to have to figure that out, but I'm not going to be here for it. And so then he pulls out the sheet of paper that he had typed up and it was bullet points. Um, and he starts reading the bullet points. The first bullet point was, I have seen a lawyer and I want a divorce. Second bullet point, I have told my family and my friends, you should tell yours too. Next bullet point, I'm moving out on this day. And it just, it was very, very John in the sense of like, very orderly, very concise to the point, very black and white. And I remember thinking like, no, 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 no. Mm -mm. Hold up. This was a fantasy. This wasn't real. It definitely did not merit you divorcing me. And so I told him, I was like, I'm not signing anything. And he was taken aback because he thought I was going to be like, oh, yes. Thank you. I want to go live this wild and free life with my lesbian lover. Um, see ya. But instead, I was like, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing is wrong. And if you how could you tell me, he was surprised? It just his oh, his face. He just was not expecting me to to want to fight for the marriage mm-hmm. because I was the one having the affair. You know. So I told him, I was like, listen, you're making a mistake. I'm not going to sign anything. I'm, I'm mentally not okay right now. And I know it. We just need to go to counseling. Um, let's, let's go to couples therapy. And you know what he told me, Richard? He's like, no, if I go to counseling, I know I'll end up forgiving you because I'm a good person Hmm. and I don't want to forgive you. And that was like very hard for me to hear because he was showing me like, I'm a good person and one day I I might forgive you or I will forgive you under the right circumstances, but you don't deserve it. That's cold blooded. (laughs) (laughs) So I took my ring off, put it on the dining room table. I packed my things. I called my job. I said, I need a mental health day. I'm not coming in tomorrow. And I went to a hotel. What were you thinking about at the hotel? (sighs) 
I felt a sense of relief wash over me because I had been keeping this secret for two months, you know, and it's exhausting to try to like have a whole affair with another person while you're working and still married and you have, you know, like your whole life, like it's, it's tiring. And so I felt relief that that part was out in the open now. Every single person I've ever talked to who has been in an affair by the end of it is begging to be found out. (laughs) It's just like, if somebody finds out I can be done with this thing and it's, it's killing them. Yeah, it was killing me. I had lost like 10 to 15 pounds, which I don't weigh very much. So I stopped eating. I, I wasn't sleeping. I felt like there was just not enough hours in the day for me to, to just maneuver everything or handle everything. There just was not enough hours in the day. And so that night at the hotel, I felt Hmm. relief. What did you think was the prospects of the marriage? Um, I knew it was over. I knew because John's the type of person he sticks to his guns. When he says he's going to do something, he's the most disciplined person ever. He woke up at 4 a.m. for like two years straight in a row to go work out before work. Like he missed no days, even snow days. He would be at the gym. Like he's so disciplined. Um, And so I knew when he said this is over, this was over. Um, But you know what? I also felt a sense of freedom that freedom that little floor had been craving for her entire Mm -hmm. life. I felt it in that moment. And the enemy said to me, you can finally do what you want floor." What was, what did you think you were going to be in a relationship with this woman then? No, I knew that that wasn't, that wasn't going to be real. Um, (laughs) Turns out she was not a very good person. (laughs) Um, as it turns out, but I just thought like, okay, this is it. I can, I can do whatever I want. If I want to date women now, I'll date women. If I want to, if I want to wild out every night of the week, I can wild out every night of the week. Like I I finally have the freedom. There is literally no one Mm. telling me what I can do now. So when you got back the next day, did you guys have a conversation? He left for his birthday weekend and he, he went out with some friends. And so there was a, a few days there where we didn't see each other. And during that time, we both kind of had a, a change of heart. Um, and the, and the weeks after there was a change of heart, like John had decided, you know what, actually, you know, I do want to save this marriage, but Floor's going to have to change. And he had this laundry list of things that I was going to have to change in order for the marriage to, to reconcile. Meanwhile, I had a change of heart too. Initially I was like, Oh my gosh, please. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I begged him to stay with me. I told him to go to counseling or I asked him to go to counseling. Um, 
But when I started to realize that he had told people and my friends were starting to find out Mm -hmm. what I had done and that his family Mm -hmm. knew and, and that all basically like my reputation Mm -hmm. was just crumbling down. I got angry and pride resurfaced again. Hmm. And I said to myself, you know what? How dare he want to divorce me? I'm the best thing he's ever had. You guys have like soap opera style power struggles in your lives. Oh my gosh. Like like the power is going back and forth between you guys (laughs) ever since you met. Because like when you meet Mm -hmm. him... Okay, in a relationship, there's one person who likes the other person more. And the person who doesn't like the person as much always has the power. Because the other person's trying to get that, you know, that person has something that they want. And it seems like in your relationship, like, you get in this car accident and all of a sudden, because you call him, he has some, like, some power. And he realizes, oh, you know, like... In the flesh, this is all awful. This is all awful. Um, and Horrible. then, like, you don't show up in the marriage sexually. And now he, he, has, he has the power. The power. And they say this thing mm-hmm. that everything in life is about sex, except for sex. That's about power. And... This is all flesh stuff. All It's all horrible, but it just seems like these power dynamics. And then all the way into this affair, the the power dynamics, like he has this power when he hands you the thing, you throw him off a little bit. Now he, and it's just going back and oh forth. It's, yeah. it's dramatic. <laughs> it's so dramatic. Like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I don't live that life anymore. It was exhausting. So now you're you're angry at him, though. You're like, you told oh, these people oh. this? You son of a gun? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You son of a gun are dragging my name through the mud? Well, maybe I do want to divorce you. You don't deserve this. I was a savage. <laughs> Straight up savage. Like, deception, right? Like, I was the one who stepped out of the marriage, mm-hmm. right? I was the one doing these crazy things in my mind justified because of all these things that had happened to Mm -hmm. me. Um, And then John finds out and he's like, you know what? I've been very unhappy for many years. I'm not divorcing you because of the affair, but the affair was the catalyst to us ending this and us ending this in the way that is like, he finally had a biblical reason to divorce me, you know, and not just adultery. It was, adultery slash homosexuality on my part. And he's like, yep, I'm out. And I was like, hold up. But what about what we had committed to? Like we had said we were never going to get a divorce. Like what about our values? What about our morals? Right. You know? Um, And when he said no, because he had the power, I was like, okay. Proud floor came out to play. And she's like, well, then, you know, well, he had, he changed his mind and then, and then I was like, well, I don't want you anymore. No. <laughs> Do you think you were just trying to get power back so that you could control the situation and you could 
like eventually decide or did you really want like to divorce him? I think it had a lot to do with, no, for sure. The enemy was just pulling me in so many different directions. Look how much better your life can be as a single woman floor. Um, look how much happier you're going to be without having this traumatic, painful sex situation going on. Um, you can gain connections and get all these new friends and you won't be lonely anymore and you'll be accepted for who you are by this community and like, you'll be good. And there were people in my life who were also like saying, well, you know, John's problems with masturbation and, um, pornography surfaced during all of this. Well, you also have a reason to divorce John floor, you know, like he ain't perfect. And so my parents were pulling me in one direction. My friends were pulling me in another. What were your parents saying? My parents just want the best for me. And they saw how, how hurt I was. And it's almost like they overlooked what I had done and just focused on what John had not done as a husband. And they wanted us to reconcile, but they, uh, I mean, they, that's what they said in words only. That's tough. Yeah. That's a tough position for them to be in. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, tell me. <laughs> So I was really confused. Yeah. Okay. I was going yeah. through like a really rough time and it was just flip flopping back and forth, back and forth. And I decided that, you know what? I'm going to go to Burning Man. So I to That's find where you myself. were located in Burning Man. So you had to go find yourself there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what Burning Man is, it's basically a, a week long event in the Nevada desert, um, where it's basically utopia. There is no exchange of money. There's no bartering, um, radical inclusion, radical self-expression, um, anything you could think of that this world has to offer. And I mean like flesh things, right. it's there. And I felt like I needed to go to this thing. What were you expecting? I was expecting to go to this place um, and get answers. Should I divorce John or should I not? Should I pursue my worldly? Should I just go 100% you know, into the world and just completely forget my religious background or you know, my Christian morals? Um, do I want to continue this whole Coachella, Bernie Man lifestyle or not? Um, yeah, I just had lots of questions. Hmm. But also I was scared because I knew, I knew what this event was and there's so much spiritualism and occult that happens there. Mm -hmm. And just my, my gut was telling me like, this is not where you should be going. So you know what I did? I was, I was scared, Richard, um, but I was still determined to go, um, that I brought my Bible with me <laughs> and 
I, I slept with it every night because this is this is a 24-7 party place. Like there is music playing 24-7. Like the party never stops. And so when you sleep, you're sleeping to the beat of like these EDM songs. And like it was hard to sleep there. There's no peace. There's no quiet um, because the devil never sleeps. So, um, yeah, I, I slept with my Bible because I felt like that was my protection there. And it's just so ludicrous that I even did that. But um, That's actually very... It shows like there's this thing about you that there's something that you mm-hmm. know that's deeper than... Like, what were you going to do when you found out all the answers at Burning Man and that they weren't located in the Bible? Like, were you just going to throw your Bible away and be like, oh, I can sleep peacefully with these answers that hedonism has told me, and now I'm my true self, and I'm going to float away on... Into nirvana. (laughs) Yeah, right? I think that's what the enemy wanted me to believe. But deep down inside, I knew, I knew that that just was not the case. In fact, at Burning Man, Hmm. like towards the end of the week, when I was just, I was counting down the days, I started to talk to people about God towards the end of my week. And I just felt like so out of place there. Like everybody was like, what? What what was the first thing where you're like, this is not for me? And you don't have to tell me anything crazy, but just like, just the vibe of the thing was like, what was the vibe? Just the tickets. When they sent me the tickets just the symbols that were on the tickets. I was like, this is, this is not, this is totally, this is worldly on a whole nother. This is spiritualism. Hmm. Um, so I knew going in and that's why I brought my Bible. And so you were there and you're like, yep. This I'm is, like, no, this is I not can't. It. Yeah, I can't. There was drugs, sex, all sorts of debauchery going on all around me 24 seven. There are no rules. If you want to walk around naked, you can walk around naked. Like it's, it's crazy. Okay. Um, and so it, I realized while I was there that I had to go to the biggest party on this planet to realize that that life was not for me. It's almost like I knew like I was meant for something higher and better than this. Um, and the whole reason why I went to Burning Man was because they construct this temple every year. Um, and it's a very like spiritual experience to go into this temple. There's people who put stuff in this temple, like things that they want to let go of or say goodbye to, or things that are special to them. And then at the end of the week, um, after they burn the man, that's why it's called burning man. There's this man that they build and erect. And then at the end, um, he burns down and everybody worships him as it's burning. Mercy. (laughs) In a circle. (laughs) Um, Uh anyways, at the end of the week, after the man burns, um, they light this temple on fire. So it's a temporary city. All these like art projects that get brought in either get burnt or they get, it's a leave no trace. So if you were to go to where burning man is right now, it's just, um, it's a desert. 
there's nothing there. But yet when Burning Man happens once a year, it's the 30, the third biggest city in the state of Nevada. That's how many people are there. And it's, they have their own postal system. There are roads, there's addresses, like it's a whole thing. Um, so anyways, I had gone mostly to find these answers, but also I had to burn some, some stuff. And instead of Hmm. burning it, like, I mean, I live, I live in the Rocky mountains. Like I could have gone somewhere and burned it and said goodbye to what I needed to say goodbye here. But no, Floor had to be extra. She went to Burning Man to take these things that represented her affair and her old life and all these things to this temple to watch it burn at the end of the week. And that's what I did. So did you put it in the fire? Yeah. I, I mean, I put it in the temple. The whole temple burns down. Okay, so you put it in there as you're watching it burn. It was cathartic in a way. It was very cathartic because it was representing uh, an end to a chapter that I knew. At that point, I decided I'm never coming back to Burning Man. This is not for me. I want to get the heck out of here. But I came here to burn these things, and they burned on the last night of the week. And so as I'm watching this burn down, I just felt sad um, because I had gotten to that point. And I knew better, but also I felt a sense of relief of like, okay, I can move on now. Hmm. So I came back to Denver and the very next day after Burning Man, I bought tickets to fly to Costa Rica to see my family because I needed, um, there's actually like ways for you to reintroduce yourself back into society after a burn, you know, after a week long at Burning Man, because it's, it's that wild and that crazy that you come back to real life. And it's almost like people go through withdrawals and they can't cope with like real life after Burning Man. And so I had asked for some time off, uh, from work and I had decided I just need to go see my family in Costa Rica. Like I just went through something so traumatic, like Burning Man that I need to like, just be with people that, that I love during this time, John and I are still fighting. We're still back and forth, back and forth. Um, so I go to Costa Rica and my mom was like, we need to get you help for your endometriosis and blah, blah, blah. So she took me to see this doctor and this visit was so emotional and I ended up making an impulsive decision and I decided I'm just going to have surgery here in Costa Rica for my endometriosis. I need to get these lemons out of my body. (laughs) So I did the next day. Oh, mercy. Yeah. That's how healthcare works in third world countries. There's no like scheduling. Like, when do you want to do it? Let's do it. Doctor's like, I got, I got something in a half hour, but after that we can (laughs) do this life-changing surgery. Yeah. So I did. So the same week that I went to Burning Man and burned these things, these symbols in that temple Mm -hmm. was also the same week that I had surgery and had my lesions burned out of my body and had those endometriomas, the size of lemons, uh, removed. And so it was a very intense and dramatic week for me. But after that, I came, I came back to the States and I was like, really, I was 99% sure that I wanted to fix things with John. I just, I just needed to see my affair partner first because Hmm. remember she had bought the ticket. That's right. I've been waiting to hear what happens. (laughs) (laughs) So she came in May 
So remember, this all started December of 2018. Mm-hmm. She comes in May. So this Have you been corresponding just, with her since then? Just no. quite a bit? Or, no. I ended things with her, but I knew she was coming because I had her flight reservation number. And I told myself, I need to see her in order to like really close the book. Like I need to meet her in person. Like I had met her in person at the party, but I mean like not after we had like developed this affair. Right. So, um, in my head, I'm like, well, this girl ruined my whole life. So I need to go see her face to face. Not because I was going to like, like slap her or something, but just because like I needed to see this in person. Right. So we met up. And Richard, it was the worst day of my entire life. It's horrible. Why? What happened? Horrible meeting. Um. Well, she was she angry at you? Yeah, she has. She had a lot of issues, and um, like I said, turns out she wasn't a a nice person at all. Not even nice to like even hang out with. Um, And I saw her for what she really was, or what what this all meant to me, you know, and. The day ended with me having a bloody eye. She gave me a bloody eye. Don't ask. She she hit you? Yeah. <laughs> with a snowball. But she hit me in the eye, and I, I had blood in my eye for the whole rest of – it lasted two weeks. Um, but, yeah, that's that was kind of like the culmination of the day. And I realized, like, I can't – like, I can't do this. This is not for me. Mm-mm-mm. Right. No. So I got in the car and I drove home and it was an hour car drive. And I don't even know how I got home. I blacked out. That whole car ride was a blur because all I kept thinking was, oh, Father, I am so sorry. What have I done? Like, it's almost like I I could finally see what it was that had me so entangled. Had you been praying before this time? No. No, this was God in his mercy and in his grace. He, he's so good to me. Like, how sad were you? Oh, I was devastated. And angry at myself for, for getting to this point. Was John at home when you got home? Yeah, he was actually packing boxes because he was supposed to move out that next day. I had kicked him out of the house, and I was like, I want you out of here. And um, he was packing up his stuff. And after my meeting with this girl, I told John, I'm like, don't move. (laughs) Wait, hold up. (laughs) Pause. Because I had finally come to my senses. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. I had come to my senses and I had realized the gravity of the situation and what I had done. And and I was ashamed. How did he handle that? He was, he was happy that like, I wanted to like stay with him, you know, and fix the marriage. But at the same time, he was like, what happened to you? Like, what made you change your mind? And I ended up telling him later, but. In the moment, I was like, oh, nothing. I just I just finally saw the light. <laughs> As I have this, like, bloody eye. <laughs> this story is crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like 
tension in my body, like listening to this story, uh, in the same way I felt listening to Chico's story. Um, I think that's good. But uh, so what happens? <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> um, I had been watching some YouTube videos, and I had found this boot camp in Nashville for basically marriages that are on their way to divorce or already divorced. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had convinced John to go to this boot camp with me, and it was going to be mm-hmm. our last ditch effort. And so um, we went to the boot camp. And to be honest, like God used those people to save our marriage because we learned so much there. Um, and we recommitted to each other at the boot camp. Um, and at that point, well, and after that, we went to Cuba. Um, and you guys really are jet setters. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I told you. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we went to Havana and that was like our second honeymoon. And this time it was like a real. It was nothing like our first one. Um, we had recommitted and we were in love again. So did you feel like uh, you guys were just back? Yes. What was going to yes be different? Yes and no. Um, we had like decided that, you know, we were going to stay committed because of all these principles we learned at this boot camp, which is Christian. Um, and we were just kind of dating each other again. Cause we had been separated now for eight months. Well, actually the boot camp was in October. Um, so yeah, like almost a year at that point we had been having like major issues. And so we were starting to get to know each other again and dating each other again. And it felt like we were just teenagers, but you know, at the same time, we still had all these lies we had been believing, you know, um, from our childhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that still affected us, but we were like, no, we're going to get through it. We have, we have, uh, the tools to work through our marriage now, thanks to this boot camp. Um, were you fighting less or not as rigorous? Yeah, we were fighting less for sure. For sure. And one thing I have to say was that John, when John decided to forgive me, like he did so genuinely, like he never, brought it up to my face again or threw it at my face or like made me feel shame or guilt for it. Um, and I know that that was just through the power of the Holy spirit that he was able to do that because had it been me, <laughs> Oh no, you know, I would have, I would been like, bye. Cause I was a, a very powerful <laughs> person, you know, but, but he didn't do that thankfully. Um, so yeah, after Cuba, we came back and you know, that Bible verse that says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away for it's better that you, uh, what is it? It's better Mm -hmm. that you enter the gates of heaven with blind than with, without entering at all or whatever. Yeah. It's in the sermon on the Mount. He says, it's better for you to lose an eye than your whole body burn. Yes. And that's what I did. When I came back from Cuba, I started to just, I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to just cut members from my body off. And I meant like cut friendships, cut people, cut behaviors. Um, I was just like cleaning Mm. house. And that hurt a lot of people for sure. Um, But 
we started listening to a pastor uh, named Michael Todd and his sermons really touched our hearts. And, and we were starting to, we found ourselves primed and ready, you know, just how I was primed and ready at that Gatsby party for whatever the devil was going to throw at me. I was primed and ready this time, but for the right reasons. For a revelation Um, of God's love. Yes. For a revelation of God's love. And, that was in February of 2020 when LRT came to town. When LRT came to town. So you, mm-hmm. how did you make your way to the meetings? Did you, uh, what did you heard about love reality at this point? So um, John and I nicknamed our flip flopping uh, time frame as the divorce debacle. We call it the double D. <laughs> <laughs> So, because, you know, it was horrible. Um, during Double D, I had bought a flight to go visit my parents in um, Santa Rosa, California. And I was there being really emo. And my dad was like, oh, there's the American church is doing something, you know, this week. You should go with your sister. Um, and I did not want to go to church. And, like, I did not, I didn't want to feel like... God was going to judge me or, you know, cause at that point I was, you know, the affair had ended, but I was still very much planning on meeting up with this girl when she came to Denver in May. So, um, and I think it was maybe March or April. Mm-hmm. I think it was April when LRT was in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. So it turns out it was LRT who was there. Um, and I went to the meeting and Eddie shared a part of his testimony And Jonathan Leonardo was just speaking so much truth and life and gospel that I had never heard before. And he even FaceTimed Jayla and was like, this is Eddie's wife. And I was like, whoa, I had never seen a a speaker like FaceTime someone just in the middle of the sermon. And like Jayla was speaking life through this iPhone to all of us in the congregation. And I was like, this is wild, you know? Um, but I remember Eddie's testimony really stuck with me because I was kind of going through the same thing. Like I was having this affair. I knew it was wrong. I felt shame. I felt guilt, but Eddie got out of it. Like, like Eddie found life after that. So that had kind of just stayed in the back of my mind, even through Burning Man, even through the boot camp, even through my surgery and everything that, that. I had done and all the things that happened after the fact, I remembered Eddie. And so fast forward to February, 2020, um, I'm cutting things from my life and trying to clean, clean up the mess I had made. And Mm -hmm. I heard LRT was coming and I was like, Eddie. So I told John, like, we got to go to this because this guy's testimony is really powerful and um, I think it'll help us. And my husband's like, okay. So, uh, so we went. And he had gone to school with Eddie. Yeah. We went to, we went to Southern with Eddie and Jayla. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we showed up the first night. Actually, John didn't come the first night. He had something else to do. And I was just hooked immediately. It was like, I was just primed and ready and the Holy Spirit just... He just ravished me. Like he just, he took over from the first night. And I just remember thinking like, this gospel is like 
it's just crazy that I've never heard this before. Like I'm a pastor's kid. Like I should know this stuff. It should be me preaching this to other people. How come I haven't heard this? Um, and so that, that kept me coming back because I, I kept wanting to know, like, tell me more, tell me more about this good gospel that I didn't grow up listening to, you know? So yeah, John and I went to all the meetings. When John went with you, did it, did it, did it latch onto him as quickly as it did for you? Yeah. I felt like we were, we were both, we were both thirsty and we were drinking from a fire hose at that point. I was like, John, come drink from this fire hose. And then he came and he started drinking from it too. And we were just, we were just happy to be getting some, some water. What do you think was the first thing that you grabbed onto that you were like, this is true. Like I haven't heard it before, but I know that it's true. When Jonathan talks about the lies that the enemy wants us to believe and then compares that to the truth of what God says we are and reads it straight from the Bible, that hit me because my whole life, all I believed was lies. And finally, someone was telling me their lies. Like someone was actually revealing that to me. Like I thought that was my truth. And I thought, you know, I believed them like as my reality. And here, here's Jonathan using the Bible to kind of explain that those are just lies. The default setting for a thought is acceptance. So if a thought comes into your mind, your default is to accept that thought as true. Like before you didn't even think, oh, where's this thought coming from? Or, oh, is this thought have any truth or could it be a lie? It's that's default is this is true. And I, I don't think many people know that, that you can have thoughts put into you by a spiritual realm. Like thoughts come spiritually and mm. it could be from your father or it could be from the enemy of your soul. Mm-hmm. And the default is to accept it. And then when you see Jesus and you believe in Jesus, now you have a choice on whether to accept if it's true or not. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's one of the things that blew me away is like my whole life. I've just believed thoughts and therefore that they mm-hmm. became true. And therefore like my life was lived by emotion, lived by feelings, lived by woe is me or yay is me just depending on my thoughts, feelings, circumstances, and not on just truth. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you're reading it right there in the Bible, there's something happening and like the spirit's moving and it's just like, floor, this is you. This is you. It was like, I felt, I felt like, man, I wish little floor would have known this, Hmm. you know, 32 years ago, I would have not gone through all this heartache. I would have known who I was. I would not have had an identity problem. 
I would have not felt alone or rejected or condemned or judged. I would have known I was daughter, that I am loved, that I am righteous, that I am blameless because he says I am, you know, and the lies that like I believed through my parents or through other people in my life, I would have been able to just call them out for what they were lies. Instead, I chose to believe them. Do you feel like you understood this from the first week or well, what happened after that? For sure. The first week, by the end of the week, John and I were both free and we were on cloud nine. Hmm. Like the, the gospel is simple and I had been overcomplicating it my whole life or, or other people had put that on me. But all I needed to know was that I was loved Hmm. And no one ever told me that. When we were in Denver, a lady came up to me in between the last session. Like I had been telling my story and then Jonathan came up and then right before like we finished it, this lady comes up to me and she says, I believe this. And she's like, she looks like she's like, been really moved by the presentation and she said well what do I have to do now and I said be loved Mm -hmm. and tears started streaming down her face because she never thought that that was the next move Mm -hmm. the next move is what do I have to do for for a lot of people and the actual move is be loved And then let the love of Christ compel you to do whatever he wants you to Mm -hmm. do next. But the next move is receive it, Mm -hmm. right? And so you didn't understand the theology, right? No, no, I just received it. You know, that's the same thing with me. All I understood was somewhere in Romans 6, it says that I'm not a (laughs) sinner. Somewhere, I think in the first seven or eight verses, it says I'm not a sinner. Yeah. And then in Colossians 1 it says I'm reconciled. That's the only thing when I when I was when I was free. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that I knew. Mm-hmm. And it's been over 2 years now and I'm just growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. But the thing we need to understand is like we're free from sin. Mm-hmm. So then what what after that you're what What did you guys decide after that? What did you make of all of this? Well, I mean, we just thought, we just thought this was a life-changing experience and it paled in comparison to everything else I had experienced in my life. This crazy burning man experience, the boot camp, all of that. None of that brought me fulfillment, you know, but this did like, it was finally like I had found the fountain Mm -hmm. of joy and peace and all things good. I found it and it was there all along, you know, and, and Eddie came one of the nights he came and he prayed with me and he's like, let's ask the Holy spirit to reveal to you what, what lie it is that you've been believing. And so I remember I was nervous because I, I thought, what if nothing, I mean, the Holy Spirit has never spoken to me before. Like, oh, what if he doesn't say anything? Like, I felt a little pressured, mm-hmm. you know? But sure enough, he, 
Eddie prayed this powerful prayer. And when, when I said, amen, the Holy spirit told me pride floor has been a generational curse in your family and it ends with you. Hmm. And that weekend when Jonathan had an altar call, I, I went up to the front and I had never gone to an altar call my entire life. You know, this was the first time ever. And I put my pride to death that day. Hmm. And that is why I am able to sit here with you and record this like two hour long podcast about how horrible I was and what a savage I used to be because I am not that person anymore. I am not proud in the flesh anymore because I know now who I am and where my identity lies and where my value comes from. And that is daughter, not of Pastor Osorio, no, daughter of the one true king. And that was life-changing. And and also that, that same day at the altar call, Holy Spirit put in my heart to forgive my father because as a pastor, he had led his, his flock or he, he was taking care of his congregation, but his sheep at home was lost, me. And I forgave him for that. Hmm. And Pretty I felt like, yeah, it's so good. Because I don't look at my father with resentment or anger for not having shown me this earlier, you know? I I look at him with love and acceptance. And he just tried to do what he thought was best. You know, my both my parents just tried to do that. Um, and when I was up there, I felt like, in regards to my endometriosis, I felt like I was the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years Mm -hmm. and she heard that Jesus was coming and she thought to herself, I'm going to go. I'm going to put myself out there. She should have been killed. You know, she could have been killed because she was unclean, Mm -hmm. but she went and she just, but touched the hem of his garment. And he said, my daughter, you are well, your faith has saved you. And so I'm going to try not to cry, but at the altar call, that's the picture in my head. I was finally at the foot at Jesus's feet and I just but touched his hem and I was made well. And so the rest is just good. I mean, the rest is just life and freedom. And like, we're on fire for the true gospel. Um, And what the enemy meant to harm me, God turned into good. And look at me now. Now hearing your story, I can't help but just... Praise God. Mm. 
Because he really, the enemy really had plans to get you out of the way. Mm-hmm. And it almost worked. It, it almost worked, man. But God. But God. He stooped down to pick me up. Let me ask you this. And I do this all the time. And I like to pick a specific point. Let's let's go back to December 1, 2000, 2018. And you happen to catch old Flora as either she's either coming into the party or leaving the party or um, she just received this news about her health. And she's thinking like, whatever you were thinking, like, who cares or... I don't know. What would you have said to this to this girl who was reeling at this moment in her life? Man, Holy Spirit is so good. I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I knew. Um, you knew that. You knew that was the moment. Huh? And to be honest, Richard, I I thought a lot about this. Nothing was going to stop Floor from doing what she was going to do. There's nothing that I could have said hmm. that was going to stop it. It happened the way it happened. And I'm grateful for it because it has led me to where I am today. And I wouldn't change a single thing about it. So instead, if you wouldn't mind, I, I'd like to flip the question. So instead of what would present floor tell old floor, I'd like to address, I'd like present floor to address future floor. Um, <laughs> this is cool. Um, I love this. I, I heard a song the other day and it just really, it really touched me to my core. Um, and I think this is the best way I could describe what I would say. So I'm just going to read to you the lyrics. Okay. Okay. The song is called No One Ever Cared For Me Like Jesus by Stephanie uh, Gretzinger. Have you heard it? It's I love it. If it's my crazy. heart could tell a story, if my life would sing a song, if I have a testimony, if I have anything at all, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. And when I'm old and gray and all my days are numbered on this earth, let it be known in you alone my joy was found yeah thank you for Thank you so much for listening to the show today. We would love it if you could share this so that people could hear uh, more of these stories. And a way you can do that is to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a high rating. If, if you give us less than a five star, I'm inclined to believe that you're not really rocking with us. So give us a five star rating and, and throw a comment in there. If you're going to talk about us on social media, go ahead and use the hashtag death to life and let's get that hashtag going. This podcast is a production of Love Reality, and if you want more information about Love Reality, go ahead and check us out at lovereality.org. 
This show's produced by Tyler Morrison and Katie Prusha. The sound and editing is done by Addison Collingsworth and Eddie Cornejo. And then the Johnny on the spot is Annabelle Harper, and the artwork is done by Felix Gassman. Thank you so much for listening. Love y'all. Appreciate y'all. Thank mm-hmm. you.